Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take two data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist, Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. Okay, so in the second part of the show, we are going to be talking about Colombia, uh, which is a country we have not addressed before. They are having an election coming up this weekend to elect a new president. In fact, we generally haven't done much on Latin America, so I would suggest sticking around for that as we dig in uh, and try to understand what's going on in Colombia. But first, we want to address something that is very much in the news, and the data point there is... 8.6. That is the latest measure of inflation, basically the rate at which prices have increased over the past year in the United States. Now, inflation is at a 40-year high. That's sending the cost of, we know, everything from gas to groceries skyrocketing now. That's higher than most people were expecting, including the Federal Reserve, it seems, America's central bank, which responded with a historic 0.75% increase in interest rates. Rarely has the Federal Reserve been under such a microscope. The Federal Reserve has announced a rate hike of 0.75%. That's the first increase of this size in over 25 years. It seems pretty obvious now, if it wasn't before, that inflation is really going to be the dominant economic phenomenon of our moment. And the response to inflation seems, you know, now destined to shape the economy for, for the next couple of years. At the very least, the inflation dampening decision by the Fed seems like it'll lead to a slowdown in the economy, could even lead to a recession, maybe, uh, that does vast damage of its own. But uh, I guess that's what we should uh, dig into now with Adam. So as a first question, I'm curious if inflation is, is worse in the United States than, than elsewhere in the West. I mean, we know that some of the supply issues that we've been facing are basically the same everywhere because of the pandemic overhang and the war in Ukraine. But are there other specific factors at work in the United States? Just in purely numerical terms, US inflation is a little bit higher, marginally higher than in the euro area. So at the latest uh, print, it was 8.6% in the US and 8.1% in the eurozone. So that is just slightly ahead. Um, it's just below the rate of inflation in the UK, obviously outside the eurozone in the sterling area. In the, in the West, in the extended sense, the only real outlier of low inflation at this point is Japan, which has moved from outright deflation to an inflation rate of 2%. And France is interesting because it only has 5% inflation right now. And that's revealing because it tells us something about what's driving inflation, because across much of the world, as you said, Cam, it's broadly similar drivers. There's three of them, I think, according to most analysis, the World Bank report recently on those, and they are in roughly similar degrees, the energy price shock, supply chain issues, and as it were, the demand shock of the recovery from 
COVID. Why is France different? Because it doesn't rely on imported energy to the same extent because it has this giant nuclear sector. So it's insulated a little bit. And that difference between 5% in France and 8% plus in Germany tells you how much difference it makes. I mean, so aside from the small statistical lead that the United States has over Europe, um, why else do people worry about inflation in America more? Because it's more entrenched, by which economists mean that it appears to have been built into more decision making in the US. So wages in the United States are lagging inflation, but they're lagging inflation less than they are in Europe. So it looks as though the American labor market is bouncing back more actively. Inflation is more broadly spread in the US across a wider variety of commodities. So in Europe, it really is energy that's doing most of the damage. In the US right now, we see inflation across a broad band of goods. Just to quickly follow up, when you, when you say wages are rising relatively higher in the United States than in Europe, I mean, that would surprise me to hear because, you know, I, one would think that labor is, is stronger, you know, labor unions are stronger in Europe. So, yeah, what accounts for sort of uh, U.S. wages rising higher? Is it just lower unemployment? Is that sort of achieves the same work as, as, as stronger labor unions? It's a super interesting question, and you're absolutely right. That would be the intuition, right, that uh, better organized workers would have more collective bargaining power. And the, I think it's – and in America, of course, recently there's been a lot of excitement about the success of a new wave of labor union organizers getting into places like Starbucks and Amazon and so on. But the process in the U.S. appears to be driven mainly by what you might think of as sort of individualized labor market um, bargaining power. If you, if you remember the great resignation that we talked about um, last year, and if you think back about how the COVID crisis impacted Europe and the United States differently, in Europe, essentially everyone stayed in their jobs. Hmm. And so neither the workers nor the employers really need to renegotiate their relationships as the economy restarts, whereas America dealt with... COVID dealt is perhaps not the right word. What happened in America as a result of COVID is there was this epic surge in unemployment. So a lot of jobs were simply lost and shared and businesses shut down and the recovery has been very rapid. So they're all restarting. And in that process of reshuffling, if you like, of, of employers desperately scrambling to find workers who were unemployed a few months before, there is more bargaining power, not in the form of trade union bargaining power, but in workers just simply saying, I don't want to be in that line of work anymore. I'm going to move somewhere else. Um, and so that's what's generating, I think, this this uh, individualized bargaining power. Huh, huh. That, by the way, is a theory that was pitched to me by a Portuguese central banker, Mario Centeno, who's a very smart guy. And, and I thought that was a really striking analysis of um, of how the labor market difference was working out. So I actually want to ask about central bankers and your opinion, whether you what you make of the interest rate hike. I mean, is it a reasonable increase, this through three quarters of a, of a point. I mean, how do you think Jerome Powell fared there with that decision? It seems in the ballpark. And furthermore, you have to, at this point, of course, you're no longer entirely the master of your destiny because it was baked into market expectations. And for them to have done anything less would have really created a shock. I mean, one thing we shouldn't do is exaggerate the degree to which the Fed actually is in control of its own destiny at this point. Um, and that's one of the sort of you know, the hubristic preconceptions of modern technocracy is that they have everything under control. And they've got a dashboard and they, you know, they tweak the dials this way and that. We, we, we may get there. I mean, there may still be a soft landing, which would really vindicate that. And I don't actually see anything in the forecast right now that suggests something much worse. I mean, it'll be a harder landing than we expected, but, but, but there's nothing in any of the forecasts that suggests a crash landing so far. 
So I think, yes, it was it was called for. Would I have advocated doing it sooner? I actually wouldn't. I mean, I'm. Mm. we've discussed this. I'm like team transitory and I've got a lot riding on the next couple of months of inflation prints because I need those numbers to come down. And otherwise, you should call me to account and we will do an episode where I will... I will admit my uh, analytical errors <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> engage in self-criticism. Well, we will have an episode if it comes to that on uh, um, extended self-criticism. But yeah. in any case, I mean, it does seem to me uncontroversial to say that central bank policy in the U.S. and elsewhere in the years prior to this latest inflation was extraordinarily loose. I mean, this was a period of negative interest rates, quantitative easing you know, where interest rates were at zero for an extended period of time since the, the financial crisis of, of 2008, basically, as, as, as far as I can tell. I mean, what role is that like sort of extraordinarily loose policy playing now in terms of the problems we're facing? I mean, I, I, I don't mean to say that it would be causing inflation per se, but are we sort of facing now problems like an unwinding that could be even more disorderly because of you know, all sorts of various assets that have been inflated across the economy by Fed policy prior to this crisis. I mean, how to make sense of all that, Adam? So a lot of the focus is obviously on equity markets right now, which are in bear market territory. There's been a huge sell-off, you know, the top 10% of American society, which will include probably a preponderance of listeners to our podcast, um, have, you know, a material stake in that through 401ks. And um, that's going to hurt. We're to, we've, you know, and we've seen a huge sell-off in tech. Uh, the the meme stocks, so-called, of the Robin Hood revolution of 2020, have all sold off hard. I mean, it's really it's a bloodbath out there. Um, but but equity is is supposed to do that, right? That's I mean, we may kid ourselves about it only ever going up, mm. but it's supposed to be able to fluctuate. And if the companies can't pay dividends, they don't, and there's no tragedy. So the the place to focus is where there's been leverage, where there's been borrowing. So anyone who's bought those stock with borrowed money is in trouble. And uh, businesses which have borrowed very extensively in a period of low interest rates, if they were not smart enough to really bake that in and hold those interest rates over a long period of time, if they're facing a refinancing wall, then with interest rates rising quite rapidly, there's, there's real risk there. And that's that's the worry, um, because in the period of low interest rates, it became very attractive for businesses to not issue new stocks, new equities, because those were going up in price all the time. That was actually quite expensive to issue. But uh, on the contrary, to issue bonds, to issue debt uh, at low interest rates. And some of those are very solid and, and a good investment, but many of them are the, mm. the so-called junk bond sector, the high risk uh, poorly collateralized debt. And, and that, I think, is where a lot of people's anxiety is concentrated. Now, it should be said that that is a bomb which people have been saying will go off for about a decade now, mm. and it hasn't so far. But I think that is that is the sector to focus on. But more broadly, your point's extremely well taken, and I think is actually at the center of the discussion right now. And it's quite shocking, because if if the aim of policy in the period since 2008 with QE was indeed to, in part, stimulate the economy by way of inflating asset markets, and if you were straightforward and honest about the asset purchase programs of central banks, QE, you had to recognize that this was part of the logic of the policy, then an anti-inflation policy in the current era can't just be about letting the steam out of the labor market. Hmm. And on the Fed's projections, it's not going to do that very much. Their worst case scenario is for an, you know, an unemployment increase of one or two percent. I mean, that'd be a very bad case. And that's tragic, of course, for the people involved, but it doesn't involve the same scale of assets that have been hit now by the 
by the devaluation of, of the S&P 500 and NASDAQ and all the other indices. And, and so there's a sense that, in fact, this may be the secret ingredient in the Fed's policy is to inflict, believe it or not, enough damage on the asset, the balance sheets of the top 10% of American households, who are, after all, also the main drivers of consumption, for them to curb their consumption, reduce aggregate demand, and thereby reduce um, the excess demand pressure in the economy. Now, that's uh, hmm. I'm sure there's no one in the Fed who's literally doing that. <laughs> because it would be shocking if they were. But de facto, I think that's part of the story here. At, at the very least, what's disappeared is what was called the Greenspan put, the promise by the, you know, the legendary central bank boss of the 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s, Alan Greenspan, which was essentially a kind of tacit guarantee from the Fed that if bad things happened in stock markets, the Fed would ultimately step in. And that seems to have gone. How long they can, can really continue that is, remains to be seen. If things get very bad over the summer, you might see a reversal of it. Huh. But um, right now, it's really a much more open-ended play than anyone anticipated. So what the Fed giveth, the Fed can taketh away, I guess. Can take then. away. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. and I guess people should have known that. I mean, like people were not as wealthy as maybe they felt or thought, but they should have known that some of these assets were not as... Uh as valuable maybe as, as, as they, they appeared during this prior period, it sounds like. Um, but the one name that has not come up so far is Joe Biden. Um, and I guess I wonder, is there anything that the president of the United States should be doing about inflation that he isn't already? I mean, I, I guess I guess he could say there's nothing I can do about this. It's up to the Fed. But 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 I would guess that's not a very politically savvy message, right? Well, you could say it isn't savvy because... Um... Because, you know, the president should be the man who has all the answers. On the other hand, if you've got a problem like the current inflation, you might not want to be in harm's way. And that was really the lesson of, you know, half a century ago of the 1970s. The last time that presidents got very deeply involved in inflation control was the period, you know, of, of Nixon through Carter. And it was a mess um, because it's a very difficult problem to control. To be absolutely honest, you know, there is a real issue as to whether or not it actually is a clever thing for an administration to take control of this issue. Unfortunately, I think the Biden administration is stuck with it, whether it likes it or not. And so there are going to be two numbers that really do matter as we go deeper into this election year. Um, and one is one is the inflation number itself. They are desperately going to want that to go below 8% over the next coming months. And the other one is, of course, the approval ratings and on the economy. Biden is in such a deep hole. I mean, it depends on which poll you look at, but it's about two to one against on his handling of the economy, which is staggering, given the fact that America has one of the tightest labor markets on record. But it's nevertheless the case that if you poll people, especially, of course, Republican-aligned people, they're actually convinced America is in a recession, which just goes to show how, shall we say, loose the relationship is between people's perception of the economy and the, what economists think is going on. Yeah. Finally, I guess maybe just to clarify the end game of inflation here, I mean... <laughs> Whenever this period of high inflation comes to an end, I mean, you know, when the supply issues of oil and, and other commodities are less of an issue, I mean, just to clarify, we should not expect prices to then reset downwards, right? I mean, this is now the new baseline for prices going forward, right? So we won't generally feel as well off until wages eventually catch up, right, and close this gap produced by inflation, however, however long that takes, right? This is a really great question because it gets to the difference between the price level and the rate of change in prices, which shifts the level, right? So the difference between where the prices are at and how they get to wherever they're at. And inflation is a measure of the movement, not the level. Um, so to get back to the original price level, you would need prices to fall, which, which sounds good until you think about it a little bit in economic terms, right? Hmm. 
can, some prices are likely to adjust downwards. So energy prices might very well adjust down. I mean, you know, we could see oil peaking out at $140 a barrel, and it wouldn't be surprising if it went down to 100 So that would be a very substantial fall. Um, in Europe, gas prices have been bouncing around, around truly insane levels, admittedly, but they're going up and down by very considerable percentage points. So there is movement in both directions. Food prices, likewise, you know, pork prices, grain prices, milk prices, all of these go up and down uh, quite quite considerably. And you know, when you get into the more sort of uh, um, unusual dimensions of the recent inflation, like the huge surge in the price of used cars, I mean, that clearly is not going to last. And there will then be a negative price shock hmm. um, from, from that, which will take prices down again. But then push this one step further and you begin to see what I mean about it being a quite double-edged sword because in distressed housing markets, rents are going to fall. And given the huge surge in mortgage costs in the US from around 3% on a 30-year fixed mortgage to about 6% in the space of six months, hmm. many analysts think we're going to see falling house prices hmm. in 2023. And falling house prices are, should set an alarm bell off everywhere. I mean, that is a recipe for a hard landing because as the prices fall, the mortgage, of course, doesn't adjust down in value. And then you get people going in America and it's called being underwater and the British call it negative equity. But what that basically means is your house is worth less than your mortgage. And then you're in real trouble. Hmm. If you can't make the payments and you sell, you're, you're, you're bankrupt. Hmm. And that then spirals financial stability risks through the system. So... Though from a cost of living point of view, it would be attractive to imagine a world in which prices went down as well as they went up. From a global economic stability, from a financial stability point of view, we own, we we really want them not to fall, because falling prices unleash the demon of deflation. Because you know it's a self-sustaining, self-fueling cycle. And uh, in the meantime, so therefore, it's much better for us to sit tight and, as you say, to allow wages to adjust gradually over time, which they will tend to do, I think, because the surge in inflation has been so shocking that hmm. no one's price, no, no one's wage setting was adjusted to an 8% adjustment. And in the meantime, there were winners, right, from inflation in the sense that especially government debt goes down in value and everyone who's a taxpayer is therefore considerably benefiting from this. That again is skewed. It's higher income people who tend to pay most of the tax. But nevertheless, there is a large group of people who benefit from a reduction in the real value of government debt. Okay, well, there you go. There's some reasons high prices may be good, or at least not, you know, at least keeping uh, prices from falling could be a good thing, at least in some respects in the years ahead. But um, okay, we will leave it there and come right back to talk about Colombia. Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. 
What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, and welcome back. Our next data point is 54.2. That is the most recent Gini coefficient from the year 2020 for the country of Colombia. Not Adams University, the country of Colombia. So the Gini coefficient is a measure of inequality, and that, that 54.2 number is not good. It makes Colombia actually the most unequal country in South America, a region that, you know, pretty notoriously suffers from inequality. And that is exactly what the presidential candidate Gustavo Petro is promising to address if he wins the presidential election that's coming up on Sunday, June 19th. The leftist presidential candidate Gustavo Petro will face off against right-wing businessman Rodolfo Hernandez in a runoff election. Gustavo Petro promises to do the opposite of what Colombian presidents have done on almost everything. It would be a really historic win. There have been leftists who have become president in other Latin American countries, but it would be the first time in Colombia, and he's not just a leftist, but even a former member of a militant group. So to just offer some context on Petro's past, uh, polls now suggest he's a pretty good chance. So we thought we'd try to offer some uh, preview of what may be coming. Yeah. So Adam, I mean, I thought we could maybe try to describe the status quo of Colombian politics and economics before moving on to what Petro may change. From what I could tell, the dominant ideology of the past couple decades seems to have been something they refer to as Uribismo. It's named after former President Alvaro Uribe Velez. Uh, apologies if I don't pronounce some of the names correctly. But Adam, could you take a stab at defining Uribismo at all? Well, a stab is, is maybe the best description of this. Yeah, so, I mean, Colombia, 50 million people on the hinge between Latin America and Central America, a really pivotal player in the Latin American scene, key neighbor, obviously, of Venezuela, Brazil, Ecuador, known for much of its recent history as a kind of um, an outlier in the Latin American political scene, right? Because it's uh, dominated, its politics is dominated on the one hand between by the long running struggle with the FARC guerrilla movement and then other uh, movements um, which uh, one of which Petro was associated with. And then on the other hand, in the mainstream of Colombian politics, incredible stability really between the blocs through the early 2000s. And then Uribe was elected essentially on a mandate to suppress and put an end to the, um, to the FARC uh, uh, uprising. So to break the status quo in that sense by establishing the full authority of the 
Colombian state and the law and order regime. And that's really, I think, what the core of his movement is about, is this explicit commitment to ending the tolerance for and the acceptance of armed resistance across this huge country. Um, and Colombia is, and you know, the material substance behind Uribismo is growth, not, not Asian-style spectacular growth, but Colombia is one of the most successful economies of Latin America and, of course, stands in very dramatic contrast to its neighbour Venezuela. Millions of Venezuelans are not for nothing refugees in Colombia. And so Uribismo is that, really. It's this promise of a, a sort of a growth strategy backed by a strong state. De facto, it also means the underwriting of this extraordinary system of inequality in Colombia, which goes all the way back to the original Spanish colonisation. Essentially, it's an unmodified neo-feudal you know, landowning structure. It has a hugely unequal distribution of land, which became more unequal in recent years, despite the fact that the peace process with FARC was supposed to deliver incremental land reform. So Uribismo, I think, stands for all of that, a kind of authoritarian consolidation uh, that will enable growth and a, a modicum of prosperity. Okay, so Petro is promising to reduce that inequality problem I mentioned in Colombia. Do you have a sense of what sort of policies he has in mind for doing that and whether those ideas are promising? Yeah, he's it, a fascinating figure. And, and I think it's worth doing justice to this, right? These, these are people involved in politics in a way that, that, I mean, folks in the West, generally speaking, or in the global North, or however we position ourselves in relation to Colombia, are not familiar with. So this is a man who was part of the M19 patriotic democratic guerrilla movement. That meant that he was part of a clandestine urban guerrilla. That meant that he was imprisoned and tortured for his political activism. And out of that emerges a front runner in a presidential election. So this is pretty hardcore stuff. These are people who, when they say that they are struggling for reductions in inequality, mean it in a way which I think we need to take more seriously than perhaps we might from conventional politicians. But he's given a series of really rather impressive interviews to very mainstream outlets. And it's a very articulate defense of what is essentially a social democratic platform. I mean, he says outright, like, don't misunderstand me. I'm not a Soviet style Marxist. He doesn't want to introduce a Chavez style regime in, in um, Colombia. That isn't the agenda. It is a inequality centered program, essentially to focus on providing basic essentials to the vast majority of the population and to do so by addressing this extreme inequality by taxing the top um, 4,000 or so families in, in Colombia who have a vastly disproportionate share of national wealth. Um, those are the landholding elite of Colombia and the business elite which descend from them. And on the back of that, what they want to do instead is to create something like an employment guarantee. They want to ensure that uh, access to college education is more widely available. Colombia, like more successful emerging market economies, is a society with a very rapidly increasing share of folks who are going to college. 55 to 60 percent of any cohort attempts to go into tertiary education. So funding of that is a major issue. And, and that, I think, is the, is the hardcore of his agenda, is to introduce a social democratic politics. He talks about democratizing the central bank, and people immediately jump on this and say, well, you know, the central bank must be independent, to which his answer, quite reasonably, is independent of what and by whom? And who do you think is in the Columbia Central Bank at this point? It is overwhelmingly business-connected elite representatives. And so what he wants to do is to have a central bank which represents society more fairly and more reasonably. And that, that frankly, would be a radical program in Europe or the United States, and there's no reason why why it shouldn't be a more serious agenda item. 
I mean, one of the things I notice is that he says he would, you know, increase spending in the various ways that you mentioned, while also reducing Colombia's output of oil to counter climate change. You know, oil, it turns out, is one of Colombia's major exports right now. So is that reduction of oil production even realistic economically for Colombia? Well, there are two components of the fossil fuel economy in Colombia, one of which is oil, the other which is coal. So oil accounts for about 42% of Colombia's exports and uh, coal for 14%. So this is a high stakes gamble. But I mean, um, being a fossil fuel exporter is a very ambiguous economic and social and political proposition. And it's it's troublesome from Colombia's point of view at three levels. I mean, um, first of all, uh, the coal industries uh, exist through subsidy. So it may generate a hard currency, it may generate dollars, but it's also a burden um, on on, uh, the Colombian budget. So one of the proposals, just like in progressive politics in much of the rest of the world, is let's start by looking at how well the fossil fuel economy would do if you took the the subsidies away that maintain it. Let's subject it to the, the test of the market. The second point with regard to oil is that the aim of the game is not to stop oil production immediately. That's completely unrealistic, but to halt further development of oil. And and that, on the other hand, is just sensible. The IEA, the International Energy Agency, has said we need to halt new development. It's Central American and Latin American oil. It's heavy. The Venezuelan oil really shouldn't be used at all in in the world anymore. So let's slow it down. And behind this is a rather important economic analysis, which is that when you look at a country's trade balance and say, oh, well, you know, oil is very important. We can't touch oil. You have, of course, always to ask yourself is why is oil as dominant as it is? And there's very good reason to think that Colombia suffers from so-called Dutch disease. In other words, because oil is so competitive, it drives the currency up um, because it creates demand for the Colombian currency to buy the oil and makes other branches of the Colombian economy less competitive, which might otherwise do better if there was less oil. Right. So, um, you need to think in terms of the alternatives that will be unleashed. So the idea is to induce a progressive reduction in the significance of oil. Why would you want to do that? Because oil is highly concentrated production in a a number of very large companies, heavily dependent on the the rest of the world, and they are major providers of employment, whereas more labor-intensive export-orientated sectors would offer uh, Colombia's working class a better bet. And the third dimension of this is the deepest, in a sense, which is also what separates this generation of Latin American leftists like Petro from their predecessors, which is that they're very explicitly engaged in a critique of what they call extractivism, extractivismo. So extractivism was the idea that you could launch a national program of growth and independence on the back of fossil fuels. So AMLO in Mexico is like the dinosaur of of, uh, extractivismo, essentially. And he's curbed the the renewable sector in in Mexico and favoring state national industry um, oil um, to Pemex to to drive uh, Mexico's development. You could say the same for many of the other leftists of the early 2000s. Lula, to an extent, even in Brazil, was still the commodity-based extractivist model of development. And the the challenge for the new generation of Latin American leftists is to find a form of development which precisely doesn't depend on this. Is this a gamble? Yes. Is it an experiment? Yes. But they understand themselves as being at the cutting edge of a global development. I mean, we're all going to have to leave fossil fuels behind. And Latin America, as on the one hand, the source of fossil fuels and other resources, and on the other hand, of course, home to the Amazon, is pivotal to this uh, entire trade-off. So it may be a risky experiment, but it's one in which really the entire world, insofar as it's interested in progressive solutions to the energy transition, should have a very serious stake. We need this to succeed. Hmm. Yeah, wow. A lot at stake there. 
a couple of other policies that jumped out at me that Petro is advocating for. Uh, he says he wants to end Colombia's war on drugs. That is a long-running campaign that has been backed by the United States. He also says he wants to renegotiate what he calls an unfair free trade agreement with the United States. I mean, I guess on those policies, is he right on the merits? And should we expect him to have a rocky relationship with Washington as a result of that? I mean, I think these are other examples of where I think the left would at least claim that they're radical because they're realistic. I mean, if you take a look at what the free trade agreements in places like Colombia have done for their economies, it's easy to see why people want change, right? Because what they've tended to do is to open Latin American markets for agribusiness from the United States, which is very bad for peasant economies. Now, is there an alternative model that will promise much better? That, I think, is a matter that requires you know, much further development and experimentation. But under the existing regime, it's very hard to see how um, campesino, small-scale peasant farming can really compete with the force of American agro, polit- uh, agro the agro-industrial complex. The other thing that's very much on the mind of the Colombian left is that in the name of free trade, you engage in, you essentially license and open the door to the repression of local efforts at labor organization. And in a country like Colombia, with this history of extraordinarily intense political violence, um, you can see why they would be worried. And I think a progressive, or at least an American administration that thinks of itself as progressive, should be open to discussions on both flanks. Um, The war on drugs is... I mean, what is one supposed to say? It is such a catastrophe. It's a historic catastrophe. It has claimed the lives, the violence in Central America and Latin America has probably claimed the lives of about a million people. It has in no way stopped the use of those drugs in the United States. And the drugs which are killing people in the United States right now are not marijuana and they're not cocaine, right? I mean, it's quite difficult to kill yourself with cocaine. It's it's not difficult to get killed in the business of illegally running cocaine. So... Um, you can see why both candidates, in fact, in the current election are demanding an end to the war on drugs. I guess finally, we are already seeing investors threaten to pull out of the country or, or reduce their investments in the event that Petro wins. From what you can tell, is that just an empty threat? I mean, I mentioned that other Latin American countries have had leftists who've won elections. Is there anything about their experience that can sort of give us insight about what's likely to happen in international financial markets in the aftermath of Petro winning? Yeah, I mean, the, apparently the Miami Association of Realtors notes that um, since March, the, the largest number of Latin American customers that they've had looking for property is, is from Colombia, uh, to which uh, one Colombian pointed out that if they actually paid tax in Miami, they'd pay far more than they would ever pay under Petro in Colombia. So they'd be better off staying at home. They weren't just simply panicking. Um, so, uh, you know, the idea that Miami is a tax haven compared to what, what they would end up paying under this putatively radical government is absurd. The thing that would be most subversive, and we really don't see much sign of this so far, I think, is, you know, a wholesale capital flight, like in Argentina, where the entire upper middle class transfers its savings and bank accounts into dollars. Um, that's, not, that's not yet a, a threat. Um, on top of the, the pressure from inside, what we've also got to bear in mind is the pressure that comes from the outside, right? In in May 2021, Standard & Poor's, uh, the big credit rating agency, downgraded Colombia's foreign currency debt status. So there are going to be pressures from the outside as well as the inside, which is why the uh, Petro's movement is making such a deliberate effort to reach out to outlets like the FT and The Economist, because they want to, as it were, establish a profile for themselves, which is not that of harebrained radicals, but as practical people aiming at 
solving what are by any account radically serious social problems in this society, which is so promising in so many respects and has since the peace with FARC achieved so much progress that this, you know, this is really the moment now to address these these basic issues and that they should be seen as in no way discouraging really to investors if you're serious about making, you know, developing a long-run business and seeing economic growth and this this inequality issue ought to be at the heart of, of what you want to do and likewise the sustainable issue i think that's the pitch that they're trying to make to the world not confrontation but intelligent cooperation on reasonable terms yeah we will definitely keep an eye on this and i imagine although it's the first time we're talking about latin america it probably won't be the last so yeah we do have to leave it there though for now Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosprow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Production assistance from Zimone Perez. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.